Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. In last week's episode, we talked with Victor Saran and Carol Karan about their life at Google and what they're doing these days. This week, we'll be reprising an interview we did with them several years ago about how they met and overcame many challenges to lead a great life in this country. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip is subscribing to a podcast is an easy way to make sure you catch every episode you're interested in. Here's Pete describing how to do it using our show as an example. And of course, we do expect that everybody subscribes to our show in a podcast because that is the easiest way to get hold of it. There are many ways to get podcasts. First of all, you should know that if you have this URL and paste it into any podcatching program or app on your phone or computer, that you'll be able to get our podcast. And that URL is www.eyesonsuccess.net slash EOS underscore podcast. If you use that URL in your podcatching program or app, you'll get our show. But the other ways to get our podcast are through the specific apps on your phone or computer. And you can just search for Eyes on Success and subscribe to that podcast using your podcatching program or app. And then you'll be able to automatically download each week's episode. The other way you can get Eyes on Success, it turns out that it's one of the favorites built into the Victor Reader stream. So if you have one of those devices, you can listen to podcasts there and Eyes on Success will already be there. Just look for it under favorites. And we've gone modern. So in addition to using a podcatching program, you can also find Eyes on Success on iTunes or you can ask your smart home device to play Eyes on Success podcast. And of course, you can always download the shows directly from our website and search for them by show number or keyword, or just go to our archive pages and look for shows. So any way you want to do it, it's very easy to get. Embraced by night stillness that touches us with into shadows we may. Well, that wasn't our usual breaker tune. That was Victor singing a tune that he wrote the music for and was one of the instrumentalists, and Caro wrote the lyrics. So for our low-tech item, we'll meet them. So I know, Victor, you've been on the show several times before, but never together with Caro. Can you start by introducing yourselves? My name is Victor Tsaran. Professionally, I work for PayPal as an accessibility program manager. So I lead their accessibility team. And um, not professionally, I guess I do all kinds of things, read books and play guitar. My name is Caro Karan, and I am a holistic life coach and an author as a holistic life coach, I want people to have a healthy lifestyle, but then I also obviously want them to choose the best path of growth in, in their lives. And as an author, I uh, published a novel uh, a couple of years ago. 
No, I've actually bought the novel, but can you tell everybody else what it's called? Sure. It's called uh, Breaking the Silence, a story in paintings. It's about the censorship of uh, gay relationships and the arts in the communist Poland, so right after World War II. And I first met Victor several years ago by working on the J Sonar Project, which is a bunch of scripts that are used to make visually impaired people able to use the audio production program Sonar. So that's been a lot of fun. And we did a show on that topic with Victor, and that's just one of the earlier shows he's been on. We've also had him on talking about what was hot at the CSUN conference and also about social media, and we will have links to all of those shows in the show notes for this show. So, Caro, I gather you grew up in Poland? Yes, I, I was born in Poland, and uh, I came to the U.S. for the first time just shortly before my 18th birthday. And Victor, tell our audience where you grew up. I grew up in Ukraine, which is a neighboring country of Poland, interestingly enough. It um, borders Poland on the east side. So Ukraine used to be part of the USSR for the last, I guess, 70 years. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989 then Ukraine became an independent country. So I sort of grew up half in the USSR and, and halfway after USSR, I guess, the best way to express it, probably. A little bit later, we'll get into how you guys both met. But just for the sake of our listeners, you're both visually impaired, right? Mm -hmm. Can you describe uh, the nature of visual impairments? Uh, you know, I always have trouble with that only because I never really remember and I never really care about the numbers because they don't mean much to me. So like whatever, 2400 versus 2600, I have no idea. So I just know that I am partially sighted uh, because I cannot drive a car, but you know, I can see colors and I read uh, books on my iPad just with uh, some magnification. So it's kind of halfway, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, so I can see it all, so it's a bit easier for me. I think the number is zero. <laughs> <laughs> zero by zero, something like that. I was born with glaucoma, and then at the age of five, I think I lost my sight because they had to perform an operation. There was something going on with eyes, some, some inflammation of sorts. At least that's what I was told. So I think it's been so long ago that I never really stopped to think about it. But yeah, the way it is right now is that I cannot see it all. And did you both attend special schools for children with visual impairments or regular public schools? Yeah, so I attended a school for the blind in Ukraine. In fact, I started out uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine, and when my parents moved to the west, so I followed, and uh, we found a local school there. So then I, I went to the other school for the blind. So I've actually, I have two schools for the blind on my record. <laughs> I never went to a school for the blind so Victor was one of the first blind people I ever met. And so I was fascinated. Like I, I kept asking him, like, how do you do this? Or how do you do that? You know, just because it's almost like an ethnographic study of somebody, you know, just because, you know, I never had a chance to interact with somebody on everyday basis who was blind. So that was a very interesting experience. So you guys both have interesting individual stories as well as a collective story of how you met and then uh, carried on the rest of your lives. And maybe we can get into a little bit of that after learning a little bit about um, what life was like in some of these countries for a visually impaired person. 
So, I mean, I, I guess I could start because uh, since I, I went through two schools for the blind, I may have a slightly better perspective, at least as far as Ukraine is concerned. Traditionally, in Eastern Europe, and I would imagine for much of Europe before uh, Second World War, blind people tended to be separated in general into some either schools for the blind or special universities, special institutes or things like that. For the most part, the consideration was that you can teach a blind person better living independent skills if you place them in a secluded environment where they get all the attention they can possibly get because all the teachers there in, in such schools would know Braille all of the teachers would undergo some sort of training before entering the school. So as a result, they, could, they were professionals in teaching blind people. And also they could create uh, conditions in those schools in a way that it was easy for someone who is blind to move around. They could pre-order Braille books or in the case of geometry or mathematics, they would give you exposure to geometrical shapes you know, by ordering specially made models and things like that. So it was generally believed that secluding blind people into separate schools was a better way than integrating them into mainstream schools. So that's basically how I grew up. I pretty much grew up since the very first grade to the very last. I, I went through that kind of program. And looking at it from today's point of view, there were obviously some bad things about it, but a lot of it was also good. What about you, Carol? My story is a bit different because, well, first because I can see a bit and then also because I was going to mainstream school. And at the time when I was growing up in Poland, it wasn't very common for people like myself to go to mainstream schools. And so the responsibility was really on me and my parents at the time who were helping me along the way by Xeroxing, enlarging the textbooks and uh, making sure I could, you know, read everything and you know, I couldn't read anything on the blackboard. So then I had friends who would dictate things for me or I would then rewrite stuff from their notebooks, you know. So it was a bit tricky sometimes. But, you know, I suppose having great support, you know, family support and great friends always helped. I had one story where a chemistry teacher did not believe me that I could not see very well because we had all the subjects in French in my high school. So she was showing formulas, chemical formulas to students and she was and and the, the students were supposed to read them out loud in French. And she showed me a formula and I couldn't read it. And so she thought that I was pretending that I couldn't read and she thought it's because I didn't study. And basically she was then my mom came to school to figure out what was going on and the chemistry teacher said, Well, because I see her running around the school all the time. So to her it meant that I could see pretty well, but, you know, she didn't understand that, you know, of course I knew the school because, you know, I, I walked there every day and I spent so much time there that, you know, I could probably walk with my eyes closed. But so, yeah, so that was the only incident where it was uh, kind of a sad story, you know, and also my realization uh, how much I cannot actually see. But other than that, you know, I didn't really think much about how much I can or cannot see. And it just was part of who I was. And you know, my, my school years were pretty, pretty happy. You know, it's interesting um, having that kind of vision when you're younger isn't really 
very different. You know, if you're not driving cars and maybe when it comes to looking at a blackboard, I used to have basically that kind of vision when I was young. And as you say, you could run around. People wouldn't know you were blind unless you picked up a book and tried to read it or couldn't read the blackboard. Exactly. It's sometimes confusing for people. It's, it's very true. In retrospect, I probably should have used the cane crossing streets, but, but I didn't. <laughs> See, I would usually walk with friends anyway, right? So I just never had that problem. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. For this week's focus topic, we'll hear about Victor and Caro's multinational experiences of meeting and dating. It's quite a story. Now, where did you meet? Once I was done with my school, I went to the university to study philosophy in Ukraine. And at the same time, I heard about the scholarship that uh, was available to go and study at Overbook School for the Blind in Philadelphia. It was like an international program for students from all over the world, basically. Yeah, so so the Overbook School for the Blind ran this yearly international program. Uh, every year they would collect applicants from different countries, and then they would some some would get scholarship. Most of them would be paid by some local sponsors, and you would come to the school for a year and study things like business English, American history. Then uh, in 1994 or 93, I think they introduced computers. I ended up going there in 1994. And that was the same year that Carl went there. So we met, I would say pretty much within the first week Mm -hmm. of the school. And then basically we've been together since. Yeah, I'd say it was love at first sight in which I never believed. (laughs) That sounds like an interesting program at the Overbrook School for the Blind. Is it still available? The idea basically was at that time, it was much easier to bring people from other regions and educate them in the U.S., give them the necessary skills and so that they can go back to their countries and, and do something for blind people in their particular locations. But I think from about 1997, 98, they realized that the world has become so so much more global and the technology, since technology was available in so many more places that it was cheaper to actually run local training programs as opposed to bringing people to the States. And so eventually they just closed the program because they basically realized the program has done what it was set to do. And from then on, it was just sufficient to sponsor local training programs. So when you say training, were they teaching you to use adaptive software and hardware or mobility, or were you just taking interesting courses and kind of through that learning how to deal with school and careers? So they would teach you, maybe they give you a little bit of, you know, run into how assistive technologies work. And we did a bit of word processing, things like WordPerfect 5.1, you know, Lotus 1, 2, 3, that kind of stuff. Then a database of sorts. Then we learned some database, Mm -hmm. so we knew how to, you know, put data together. And then we learned a bit of encyclopedia, so CompuServe was coming online, or was popular (laughs) back then. Uh, And then, of course, there was anybody who wanted to take extra class, and there was also a programming class. So that... At that time, we did some Pascal, Pascal right? Yeah. yeah, and then also we studied English. So we studied business English <clears throat> and then American history and some literature. And then also they were helping to pass the TOEFL test, which is the test of English as a second language. Uh, and that helped us get to the university. So that was very useful as well. I take it you both were reasonably proficient at English by that time? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean... I think that's one of the reasons why we started chatting right. so early on, because because not all the students were so proficient, and so it was just very easy to talk to one another. So, you know, probably not as proficient as we're now, but certainly right. better than many other students. How did you learn English? You know, you could say probably thanks to Beatles and all those popular songs, that's how I got interested in English. Of course, thanks to Beatles. I mean, I, I was listening to the Beatles with my mom because she would recall her youth, you know, and she would say, oh, I listened to that with your father. <laughs> and then I would have to write the words down. <laughs> you know, it's funny you should mention that I had the opportunity to work with some colleagues in Japan a while back. And I noticed that many of them spoke in a very vernacular kind of English, which I was surprised, and asked them where they picked that up. And they said, well, they just watched all these American movies when they were young. Right. Exactly. Well, and then I did my postdoc in Germany, and all of the scientists, of course, spoke English, so that was fine. And they all spoke proper German, but the technician in the lab only ever spoke the local dialect. He didn't even speak proper German. So although I had learned German, we still couldn't talk to each other. <laughs> and he certainly didn't know any English, but he would go around all day singing Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And he knew the lyrics from one end to the other, but he couldn't speak a word of English. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So. so here we were in the United States with two visually impaired people who fell in love at first sight. A bit ironic. I know. <laughs> what happened after that? Right. But I really did like the way Victor looked because he had lots of curly hair and it was pretty fair. To me, he looked like a prince from a fairy tale. I've never met anybody like him. And so I really liked the way he looked. I mean, I still do, but... <laughs> now he's blurrier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. So after that, basically what happened is... Part of the requirement, because you could only come here on, on so-called F1 visa, which is a student visa. And basically one of the requirements is that if you come on F1 visa, you have to come back to your country and you can re-enter the United States in some other capacity, like if you get a job or whatever. So the requirement for that program was that once it's over, we had to come back. So you couldn't, let's say, start looking for a job or, or start even looking at the university. First, you had to come back and then you could restart any kind of process. So we had to come back. But because we're from two different countries, I mean, naturally, the question came up. OK, so how you know, are we going to be able to meet again? And, you know, if yes, then how? And, you know, so there was all these all these worries about how we're going to continue relationships. So, so initially, it was actually funny because instead of emailing letters, because obviously, you know, I, want, I wanted to be able to write letters on my own, you know, I didn't want to dictate to somebody or whatever. So I would just write a letter on a floppy disk, then put it in a regular envelope and just send it to Caro, and then she would do the same. And then, you know, when I would get the floppy disk back, I would just put it into my laptop and this way I was able to read what she wrote. So this way we were able to maintain an independent sort of correspondence. No, that was very clever. That was a really old sneaker net. Yeah, exactly. So you know, because you didn't want to, otherwise you'd have to ask somebody, oh can you please read this for me and And you know, sometimes we've done it too because sometimes so later on there was a period when I came to the US one semester before Victor and so I would send him faxes from here to Ukraine, because I knew that he would get a fax in, you know, early in the morning when he would get to his work. And so it was just one of the fastest ways at the time to get hold of each other. How did you manage to see each other across all that distance and international borders and stuff? 
I was just taking train from Ukraine to Poland, I think every month or something, or every yeah, yeah. two months. Pretty much every month, I would say. Yeah, so so that's basically the way we kept in touch. And the funny thing, so the, the first time was the, to me, like the most uh, crucial one, because I wasn't sure if he's going to come, you know? I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, I'll come visit you, and it's another thing to actually do that, right? I mean, there are many things that can happen in between. You know, maybe there was some ex-girlfriend I didn't know about, or who knows? Or maybe he's just, you know, he's going to change his mind. So the first time, actually, he came with his mom for a couple of days, but then the mom had to leave very quickly, and so then Victor stayed for another month or so, and then from then on, we pretty much, we, we saw each other very regularly, you know, almost every month, and then I visited Ukraine also in the meantime, and then we went for a summer camp together. And so, you know, it wasn't that bad. But Victor should tell you about his train rides, because that was quite heroic, I would say. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. But it was interesting, because I had to go. So Carol lives in the western part of Poland. And as I said, Ukraine is in the east of Poland. So that meant that I had to travel throughout, throughout pretty much the whole country, which the train ride takes about 12 hours. And there was only one route that you could take and that was starting in the evening going through the night and then in the morning you would be there in Poznan which is the city where she lived I loved it because I like being in public transportation and also meeting people but obviously it was all kind of, there were lots of unknowns every time you would get on the train so and also it was kind of difficult to get through the border I mean not for Victor because obviously he was never really bringing anything to Poland to sell but just that he never knew how long he would have to wait at the Polish-Ukrainian border because many people from Ukraine would come to Poland with lots of goods. And so it was a bit crazy. Like, you have to get out of the bus and then they would search the bus. Like, you know, so it was kind of unpredictable. Is he going to actually get to that train or isn't he? You know, so <laughs> thankfully he did. But just that it was so unpredictable. And he managed to befriend personnel at the... <laughs> at the train station there already because they, you know, they knew him, right? So there was one lady who took him for tea from time to time there. <laughs> well, I can see why you say this qualifies him as a hero. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, okay, you grew up in Ukraine and Poland. You met in the United States. You got married and you didn't start out in any of those countries. Where did you go next? I was in Ukraine for two years and, you know, visiting Karo. And she, we basically applied to the same university because we, we kind of decided at some point we wanted to go back to the States, continue studies. Basically, we did get accepted to Temple University in Philadelphia, but Carol was able to actually start her studies half a year earlier than me. So then, you know, we spent five years here in Philadelphia and, you know, I did my bachelor's degree in computer science and Carol did hers in Asian studies, right? Mm-hmm. and a master's degree in uh, liberal arts. After graduating from Temple University, they traveled extensively throughout Southeast Asia and India, doing training for other blind and visually impaired people. Since all of that travel, they returned to the United States, first to the Washington, D.C. area, and have now settled in California. And I understand you guys just bought your first house. Has that been an experience? Yeah, it's quite amazing experience. We totally didn't expect to buy the house to begin with. Many people think of California as being much of a commuter location in terms of, you know, driving an hour or two to work and caught in traffic all the time. As visually impaired people, how did you take that into account in choosing your location or the house? 
I mean, you know, there was one of the most important considerations, if, if not the most important one, uh, is that, you know, we wanted to live at a place where we didn't have to be dependent on cabs or relying on friends because just like you said, in California, you just have to drive pretty much everywhere. So yeah, so we chose a community that's very walkable. So you can walk mm -hmm. to the train station, to the post office, to the hospital if you need to. So everything is really, really close by. There are several banks, you know, lots of restaurants. And so we're pretty much taken care of here, you know, as opposed to we could have bought a cheaper house someplace else, but then it's not as walkable and, you know, it's more difficult to get to places. So you kind of have to spend more money on cabs. As a blind person, you do miss out either way. You can't reach things like if you wanted to go to the beach on your own, or if you want to go to the mountains, obviously you still have to drive with somebody. But at the very least, all our everyday needs, mm -hmm. uh, we can basically be completely independent without ever having to ask anybody for help. So you both get to work on mass transit? Right. So Victor does, because I work from home and then I attend a meeting on Friday that I'm driven to because I drive with friends who are also attending that meeting. So that's... That's really, really nice. So, yeah, so we walk to the train station, then just take a train, and then there's a company shuttle that takes me from the train station, and then just reverse. Yeah, yeah. so we have a nice walk together in the morning and in the evening, basically. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Yeah. And good luck with your new place. Oh, thank, thank you. you. That also wasn't our regular breaker tune. That was called Fresh Mint, and that was also written by Victor and performed by him with some friends. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about Caro and Victor and how to reach them if you have any questions. Do you guys have any contact information that you'd like to share with our listeners or websites or social media feeds? As far as my own, I'm at V-I-C-K-0-8, which is my Twitter handle. It hasn't changed since 2008. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's probably, and the Facebook, you know, but but I, I think Twitter is probably the best channel to see what I'm doing. Yeah, for me on Twitter, I am a rainbow poetess. Uh, so I kind of combine poetry, writing and technology on Twitter uh, people can also follow me on Facebook, so like don't friend but follow me. Uh, that's pretty much it. You know, I am on Instagram also. So for people who want to, for example, search Facebook for your names, can you spell them? Sure. So mine is K-A-R-O and last name is C-A-R-A-N as in Nancy. And Victor Tsaran is V-I-C-T-O-R and last name is T-S-A-R-A-N. And if anybody wanted to reach either of you directly, how would they do that? Uh, for me, I guess probably the best is Twitter. People can just, you know, DM me or, yeah, probably the best. Yeah, same here. Just DM me on Twitter. And as usual, you'll find all of that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. In those show notes, we'll also have links to previous episodes in which we talked with Vic and Carol. They're fun to listen to. And in case you didn't catch last week's episode in which we talked with them about their life inside Google and what they do there, you might want to check that out too. 
That's it for show number 1841. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about preparing for your first guide dog. In previous episodes, we've talked about how guide dogs are raised and trained to work with their owners. But how do you know if a guide dog is right for you? And if you decide you want one, how do you prepare to have one? We'll talk with Mark Gillard of Guide Dogs for the Blind, who addresses these questions. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes, and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success, or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.